This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Why was the Enlightenment a turning point in the way in which humans think about climate? In what way did climate catastrophes affect revolutions and vice versa? And how did climate politics emerge during this time? In this GHIL podcast interview, Research Fellow for Colonial and Global History, Mirjam Brusius, and me, PR Officer Kim König, talk to Patrick Anthony about the research behind his GHIL lecture on climate crisis and politics in the 18th century. Patrick Anthony is currently a junior core fellow at the Institute of Advanced Study at the Central European University and will soon take up a new position as an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow at University College Dublin. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on our GHIL podcast. We very much enjoyed your lecture that has been some time ago already, but we're very happy to have you back on the podcast to tell us a bit more about your research. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So jumping right in, you gave a lecture on terrestrial enlightenment. Could you tell us a bit more about what that means and what your research is on? Yeah, sure. So um, broadly, I'm a historian of science and environment, and I study Central Europe and the world. And um, I came to this particular lecture and an article in a mining archive in Saxony, in Germany, because I'm especially interested in the way that sciences and knowledge about natural systems developed in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially in relation to extractive industries. So what's the relationship between knowing and shaping and exploiting the natural world? And so that is the general framing of this lecture, looking at that intersection. Thank you very much. We really enjoyed the lecture. As I just said earlier, I'm not an early modernist. Um, so I work on the 19th century and the early 20th century. And I was very intrigued by what you told us about climate being a vital point of debate in the late 18th century um, and in political debate. And that climate really became a political map and that triggered new reforms new forms of management across borders even sort of became a, a global point of discussion. But then I wondered, what is it about the 18th century that made you come up with the argument that this is really a reference point for today, where there are other events later also where you could make similar arguments. So I wondered if you could flesh out just a little bit more what made the 18th century so special and also distinct when you compare it to later periods in history between today and the early modern period. Yeah, no, fantastic and challenging question. I think what's really interesting about this late 18th century period is that it's a time when many people are becoming aware of the human capacity to create environmental changes. And though the you know, modern fossil fuel economy is really just coming into being in the late 18th century, people are thinking largely in terms of 
deforestation and changes in the landscape as the way that humans dramatically impact at least local climates, though they're beginning to think in larger terms. And I think one of the important parts of this particular juncture in the late 18th century that maybe sets it apart from earlier periods is in Europe and European colonies, a heightened awareness that deforestation can dramatically alter atmospheric events. And so there is this rising understanding that, in effect, climate can be weaponized by certain regimes, certain colonial powers, or climate can also constitute a threat to different political interests. And so this is something that really culminates, as many scholars have pointed out, um, especially Richard Grove's remarkable work in the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution, and this, this so-called age of revolutions, where there are a series of extreme weather events that people begin to understand as acting on and, in a sense, through political changes. So I think that's, I think that's what's concentrated in this moment, yeah. I wondered on that point, which role images play in your research, because I was really intrigued by the slides you showed that unfortunately our podcast listeners won't be able to see, but maybe you have sort of other material floating around and articles where people can look into these images, because the juxtaposition that you just described between also industry and nature and the ruination, that really came across very well in the slides you showed. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the visual material, whether you use that as a source and what kind of role it plays in your research. Yeah, thinking back on it, there is a, a juxtaposition in the material and visual culture, especially of, of the late 18th century, and especially around the time of these massive floods across the European continent in 1784, which are a consequence of volcanic eruptions in Iceland, actually, but they caused a tremendous amount of destruction that artists captured in, in paintings of river basins and cities along rivers that have been destroyed, especially in Central Europe. And it's interesting because this is juxtaposed with another genre, if you will, of imagery of the very solid and enduring structures of material artifice. And so there's a, a kind of visual argument there or visual debate even about what kind of human created structures can endure these sorts of catastrophes. And this, I mean, part of the argument I'm making is that this is also a conversation about what sorts of political and social constitution can endure such events. You said that climate reacted on and through revolutions, and I thought that sounded really interesting. So you were talking about earlier that kind of climate, climate disasters, climate variability destabilized powers, as well as gave or materialized political power of regulatory forces. How was the interaction between these forces, regulation and revolution? Something that really drew me to this material is that there's great historical work on the metaphors for political revolution, especially the French Revolution. Often they were natural metaphors, metaphors of natural disasters, avalanches and torrents and, and these kinds of great events. And one thing I wanted to really underscore is that 
these aren't just metaphors. You know, people are understanding how, for instance, a series of, of hailstorms which wreaked havoc on the economy, how these kind of events really affect you know, the social changes during a revolution and can, as you mentioned, destabilize certain regimes. Um, and there's another side to this that I wanted to show too. And this does go back deeper into the early modern period where one particular writer who I follow throughout the story, Georg Forster, he being a well-known naturalist and nature writer and traveler of his time, as many of you will know, he often wrote about structures and, and works of artifice also in this metaphorical way, or rather as analogies, you know, saying a dam, a certain kind of uh, mechanical apparatus is like a well-contrived political constitution or vice versa. And one thing I wanted to show here is that actually that's coming from a deep tradition of statecraft, essentially where uh, I look especially at Saxony, where these old regime uh, Central European states, they understand forestry and other kinds of basically environmental governance as arms of the state, so as features of governance. And by extension, people on different sides of political spectrums, revolutionary or reactionary, understand a a state's ability to moderate, to temper the natural world, to manage resources as a materialization of their, basically their right to rule, their right to govern. So if we look at that from today's perspective, if we take Renaissance revolutions as an example, obviously, as you were saying earlier as well, we are living in a time of acute climate crisis and also very visible climate protest. Is there a resolution to this relationship between regulation and revolution or what would it be? Well, that's a tough one. I think the main thing is that what this lecture and what this talk shows and what other scholars have shown as well is that states' responses to certain environmental crises and environmental questions were understood to advantage one regime or over another, one part of the population over another. And so there is a direct link there to what we're seeing today, where certain countries in certain parts of the world are severely disadvantaged, usually by often by colonial histories, in their ability to respond and adapt to a climate changed world. And so I think that crisis today and the asymmetries that intensify it, you know, provide a lot of the impetus to understand the deeper history of how those inequalities came into being and how decisions stretching as far back as, as the 18th century and, and before, as he said, created some of those inequalities and a kind of early climate politics that was already meant to disadvantage certain people over others and advance certain political agendas. Absolutely. Thank you. And then last but not least, because we're the German Historical Institute in London, and a lot of the examples that you're drawing on in the lecture do come from early modern Germany. And I was just wondering, where does your interest in German history arise from? Well, I've always been interested in the nature writing tradition, uh, you know, that in 18th century Germany and the different kinds of sciences there, you know, whether enlightened or earlier in the classical period. But there's another part of this, which is the, the 
institutional enlightenment in Central Europe, if you will, inside of cameralist administrations and bureaucracies. And of course, I'm looking here a lot at forestry and mining bureaucracies. And, you know, one thing I want to do is while we know a lot about the romantic views mm -hmm. of nature, there is this very powerful and you know, as I show here, materialized, institutionalized conception of natural order. And I think that's something that I'm trying to draw out, not just say in the writings of a well-known naturalist like Georg Forster, but placing him in the context of the worlds he moved through, in this case, through his apprenticeship in the mining center of Freiburg, Saxony. I think that's one of my interests for sure, is taking those known histories of the romantic view of the world and rethinking them from material standpoints. Thank you. I think that's a really interesting perspective. Thank you so much again for this interview. I hope our listeners will enjoy it as much as we did and also your fantastic lecture, of course. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.